0: Welcome back to another episode of Future Cities. I'm your host for the month, Stephen Elser, a Ph.D. candidate at Arizona State University. In this month's episode, we're going to talk about various terms that are used to describe nature in cities, the trees, the parks, the wetlands, and the many other examples of nature in cities. So there are lots of different terms to refer to nature in cities. Maybe you've heard the terms green space or open space, for example. Nature-based solutions is a quite common term, especially in Europe, though it's a term that organizations like the Nature Conservancy use here in the United States as well. Green infrastructure is a term that's pretty popular here in the U.S., and one that you've heard us use many times before in previous episodes of this podcast. So, which of these names is best, and why does a name really matter? Well, names do matter, I think, for a few reasons. For one, names add clarity. So let's take the term green infrastructure as an example. In the way that I and my colleagues generally define it, green infrastructure refers to natural or semi-natural spaces in cities that provide some range of benefits to people. However, that's not what the term means to people outside of our field of study. So green is frequently used by the public to refer to anything that's environmentally friendly. Recycling is green. Renewable energy is green. Sustainability is green. So when you say green infrastructure it's not necessarily clear that you're referring to that sort of use of natural features to provide services that i mentioned before one might just be referring to infrastructure to support recycling or more clean energy Uh, so for example see the recent headline about joe biden's plan to spend two trillion dollars on green infrastructure if he's elected president in this case the green infrastructure plan is mostly referring to improving public transportation and shifting towards the use of clean fuels. So what my colleagues and I refer to as green infrastructure is not at all the focus of this plan. So it's clear that the term green infrastructure can mean different things to different people. And even within my own field, people can't always agree on what is and is not green infrastructure. So in a case like this, perhaps it's obvious that we might want a different term to be more clear about what we mean. So names also matter in that they convey certain values. By using some names over others, it communicates what sorts of things we find important or what our goal is. As a quick example, using the term green stormwater infrastructure pretty clearly conveys that the goal is to regulate stormwater in some way. Later in this episode, we'll hear from Jason Sauer as he describes what he calls heritage forms of natural infrastructure and what that term means in the context of the research that he does. In the communities in which he works. Before that though, I interviewed Dr. Dan Childers about a term that he and others wrote about in a recent paper, urban ecological infrastructure. You may remember him from an episode a few months ago where he and I discussed how the field of urban ecology has changed over time. In our conversation today, you'll hear him make arguments for using the urban ecological infrastructure term to describe nature in cities, how that term differs from other terms to describe urban nature, and some examples of notable urban ecological infrastructure features in the Phoenix area. Here's our conversation.
1: I'm, uh, I'm Dan Childers, um, a professor in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Um, I'm also the director of the Central Arizona Phoenix Long-Term Ecological Research Program.
0: Could you just, first of all, just define what is urban ecological infrastructure? Absolutely.
1: Um, so. Uh, we have a paper that just came out um, in the Journal Elementa on this, and um, in the process of of writing and rewriting that paper, um, I discovered in a, a journal I had actually never even heard of um, <laughs> that there were there was a um, what are they what did they call it a symposium? Um, it was in Beijing, China, um, sponsored by the Chinese Academy of Sciences Forum. I guess it was a forum. Um, in 2013 on urban ecological infrastructure. And a series of papers, in fact, a special issue came out of that um, almost exclusively with Chinese scientists as authors and co-authors of the papers um, in a journal called the Journal of Cleaner Production. Yes. Have you heard of that before? No, never. I hadn't heard of it before either. I just, after digging and digging, because... You know, one of the criticisms we got originally was that um, my co-authors and I had come up with a new jargon term that, yeah. that something new and, and, and that we were being arrogant first of all to, to claim that we needed to be the ones to, to, to find some new term for something that already is pretty jargon rich. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and, which is nature in cities. Yes. So it turns out we didn't invent the term at all. <laughs> um, it came from this this you know this symposium in in Beijing. In 2013, um, the challenge is that their definition of of urban ecological infrastructure was so broad and so all inclusive that it it, it didn't really it didn't re hold weight to mm-hmm. us. Um, and so our definition of urban ecological infrastructure is really simple. Okay. It is everything, all infrastructure in a city that is capable of supporting ecological pattern. Or ecological structure and ecological function, right? And so, if you think about it, that means UEI is basically everything but the literal built environment. Okay. Okay. So um, UEI, as we think about it, there's a there's a bunch of examples of of UEI that that immediately would come to anyone's mind: um, parks, yep. street trees, yep. everyone's yard. Yeah. Yards are probably the largest coverage of UEI in a city. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because each one is individually managed with different, different, different rules, different norms, different, different perceptions, preferences, yeah. yep, preferences, and mm-hmm. yep, yep. Um, uh, let's see, urban lakes are UEI, urban wetlands are
0: UEI, yeah.
1: Um, but vacant lots, right? There's all kinds of of microbiological and biogeochemical things going on in the soil of vacant lots. Oh yeah, right. Here, vacant lots aren't vegetated because they're not watered, yep. right? Um, but that dirt is still doing stuff. Still doing. So vacant lots are definitely urban ecological infrastructure. A flower pot on someone's front porch has soil in it. It's got a plant in it. If that plant is blooming, that plant is supporting pollinators, and that plant is giving whoever walks back and forth across that front porch every day a little bit, a little jolt of, of pleasure, sure. right? That, f- that flower pot and the plant in it is urban ecological infrastructure.
0: So it could be very small scale you got to, it. to large scale you got as it. well. As long
1: as it supports ecological structure and
0: function. So in this mm-hmm. paper that you wrote, I know uh, a swimming pool, for instance, is not urban ecological infrastructure. It's not.
1: It's not. Right. Because by putting chlorine and other chemicals in it, which we do, to... We essentially do that to make sure that it is not an ecosystem, an ecological system, right? right? So the we don't want the algae growing. Can, That's right. Can go and
0: That's yeah. right. Okay. That's right. So, I, so I'm curious, at what point um, from stopping chlorination in a swimming pool would it become <laughs> urban ecological infrastructure in your eyes? It's as soon as, like, um, as soon as it stopped so being as, managed. As soon as, like, a as, as stray algae could start to grow. I think or, so. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think so. Um, And so I I had somebody ask me a question when I was talking, giving a talk about urban ecological infrastructure not too long ago. Um, And it was here. I I don't remember where it was, but it was here. And someone raised their hand and said, so we have javelina come and drink out of our pool Mm. all the time. Mm. Doesn't that make it urban ecological infrastructure? Mm. And I was like, so I, I had to think about it a minute. I thought, okay, well, that pool is providing a service, not necessarily, well, I guess it's kind of an ecological service. It's providing a service and a benefit to those habalina. Um, and I'm sort of talking through this as I'm trying to figure <laughs> out what the answer is. Yeah. And I said, do you like habalina?" And they're like, oh, no, they're ugly and they're a pain in the butt. <laughs> and so your swimming pool then is actually attracting organisms that you don't benefit from and that you don't like, mm-hmm. right? And so not only is your swimming pool not providing ecosystem services right it's not providing any ecological structure or function that's generating benefits for you um, it's benefiting organisms that you don't like right and so I to me that swimming pool is still clearly not Uei at that point
0: um, so what about um, so urban wetlands lakes rivers <laughs> those are all Uei what about a canal would that be qualified would that qualify as Uei
1: I think so yeah just because it's concrete lined doesn't mean there isn't um, plenty of primary production going on in there. The canals all around here all have fish in them. Oh yeah. Right. And so there, there's an entire trophic interaction going on there. There's all sorts of, um, ecosystem processes going on in there. And there are people, I mean, there's places in the city of Scottsdale where they've turned their, their canal into a major urban amenity. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, I would say the canals around here are as much UAI as Tempe Town Lake, um.
0: So I think that's a that's something that's really exciting about this term is that it does include such a diversity of infrastructure features. So things that are heavily, heavily designed, like these mm-hmm. canals and concrete lines, channels to potted plants, to trees, to mm-hmm. you know, what you name it. Mm-hmm. I think that's really great. Um but so, getting back to this point that you received, this comment that you received um, in reviews about, well, this is just another jargon
1: term. Mm-hmm. Because we already
0: have yep. words to we describe a words. UEI A bunch, bunch of concepts. Green infrastructure, which I've used. We have episodes about green infrastructure on this podcast, we've talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, There's nature-based solutions. Um, There are other ones that I can't think of on the top of my head right now, but these are already terms that are uh, out there in the cosmos, and people are using them pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. Even people um, like practitioners I know really like the term green infrastructure, or at least using it uh, Mm -hmm. fairly frequently uh, on their own. And when I've had conversations with some collaborators about, well, should we be using the term green infrastructure, or should we be using this urban ecological infrastructure term? Mm-hmm. I've okay. gotten feedback, well, you know, the practitioners that we work with, they're already using green infrastructure, so we should probably just stick with that, mm-hmm. uh, so it's not cause any new confusion. So, mm-hmm. uh, why, in your mind, should we uh, adopt UEI, or urban ecological infrastructure, over just maybe adapting definitions of already existing sure. terms?
1: sure, sure, sure. So, so for starters, I'm not I'm not being a militant activist about this, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't carry a soapbox around with me, and every street corner I have to stop and wait to cross the light. I'm up there, I'm preaching the <laughs> UEI, the UEI sermon. Um, so I'm not uh, not about that, but I do think that there are some, so from an ecological perspective, there are some important limitations of all of the other terms that are used for nature in cities. Um, let's start with GI, right? Green infrastructure. Um, for starters, most of the time that that term is used by practitioners, um, it, it's being used in a very terrestrial-centric way. Mm-hmm. Um, most practitioners would not refer to Tempe Town Lake as green infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? Um, but Tempe Town Lake is nature and city, Definitely. right? Um, and so it's missing Tempe Town Lake. Um, so that the, the terrestrial-centric part of it is, is something that bothers me. Um, because when we think about green, we think about terrestrial ecosystems. Uh, But the other thing, the part that that I think is particularly um, worrisome about the term GI is that when you get outside of the the world of urban ecologists, urban scientists, and and practitioners, and decision makers in in planning and that kind of thing in cities— and out into the general public, GI means something completely different. Mm-hmm. It has enviro-political decisions that have nothing to do with nature and cities, right? Right. And so, to the general public, if you ask people what is green infrastructure, they would tell you recycling programs, solar panels, solar panels um, sure. electric cars, yeah, right? Right. These in more environmentally friendly infrastructures and concepts. Yeah. Right. And that's that's that, that leads to some very real confusion. That could lead to some very real confusion. Um, and so th- that's my problem with GI. Um, another one that is commonly used more, 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 more recently here in the, in the States. Before, is,
0: before we move on to that, uh, just to talk about GI a little bit more. So uh, GI, just for clarification, would still exist under the urban ecological infrastructure umbrella, correct? So GI, green right. infrastructure, is mm-hmm. UEI. Just a subset of
1: it. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's basically the terrestrial parts of UVI, yep. right? Yep. The problem because of its terrestrial terrestrial centricity is that the concept doesn't really seem to openly embrace aquatic systems or mm-hmm. wetland systems, right? And wetland systems, wet, wetland systems, as you know, are unique yep. because they have characteristics of both aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems. And so they're either both or neither. And so they are wetland ecosystems are the own um, uh, So another term... Um, urban green space that you see used, um, recently, um, I, I don't really know what the difference between that and green infrastructure is, except in it, because it's a more recent term, um, their definition seems to imply that, um, urban green space does include at least aquatic systems, um. And, but the definition of that it gets a little bit more complex, almost like the original Chinese definition of UEI, because it includes things like connectivity to green space outside of the city mm. and stuff like that. Um, and so it also is terrestrial, terrestrial centric because it's still got that green yeah. in there. Uh, but I don't think UG urban green space UGS is something that's going to be have a, an enviro-political enviro- confusion. And so that that's one positive thing about it. The other one that you hear a lot is nature-based solutions, yeah. and that's a very Euro- European-centric term yes. that's becoming more, more common here, um, and on our UEI paper that just came out a couple of weeks ago, one of our co-authors is an environmental engineer at the University of Strasbourg, and so he he brings to the table, or brought to the table, um, all the inside scoop on what NBS means in Europe, um, and the challenge that that... Um, Paul has with, with NBS as a concept for nature and cities is that it is a very solutions-oriented, very engineering-centric concept. Mm. Now, whether that's the same way that it's being defined and perceived here in the U.S. when it's used, I don't know. Um, but, but NBS in in the, the sort of European way of thinking about urban solutions um, tends to be, and NBS is always focused on a single problem. And, the, and these nature based solutions providing a single solution, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the way engineers think about things, yeah. right? And not, not, nothing against engineers. They're generally given a problem and they have a way of solving it, and, and so they have a solution. And the problem with that is that pretty much anywhere that you find UEI in a city, that you find nature in a city, that's going to be providing multiple benefits, mm-hmm. multiple ecosystem services. And if it was designed and built, as as a as a nature based solution then the benefit that it was built to to provide is one of only many right ecosystem services that that uei is probably providing and so the whole nbs thing tends to be it tends to be single solution single benefit centric and that's 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 a problem the nature based solution definition very clearly includes aquatic and, and wetland systems. In yeah. it. And so that's not the problem. The yeah. problem is that it's just, it's not expansive enough in terms of making that ecosystem service bridge back to human benefits um, and imagining, or at least envisioning that pretty much any form of UEI is going to provide multiple benefits besides, besides the ones that it was
0: designed to provide. Excellent. So uh, you've talked a little bit about some already, but could you uh, give some examples of some uh, prominence or unique UEI features uh, in Phoenix?
1: Oh, unique UEI features in Phoenix. Um, Vacant lots. Um, And I I say that because most people wouldn't think of vacant lots as being even remotely ecological. Yeah. Because here they're just, it's just dirt. It's empty, it's barren. It's it's empty, barren dirt. Sometimes there's gravel, right? There's no plants. How could it possibly be alive? Um, we have, we have some pretty spectacular urban parks and preserves here. Um, South Mountain Park, which is the city of Phoenix Park, is the largest urban park in the world. That statistic blew me away when I first heard it.
2: Yeah.
1: Holy cow. So in terms of scale, I think, I think, you know, we have some really amazing, um, UEI here.
0: I know there's one that, that I think is, is pretty unique, or at least um, has been well studied here, and mm-hmm. that's the accidental wetlands. Yes.
1: Okay, so so um, accidental wetlands are definitely not unique to Phoenix. Um, I the, I would be willing to bet that the accidental wetlands here in Phoenix have been better studied than those in most other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... For them to be accidental, I guess we should define what we yes, mean by please. accidental wetlands, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, in a place without water, um, wetlands can only occur when there is a confluence of um, water on a regular basis um, and, and some topographic ability to hold that water in place. Um, so as of the late 1930s, when we finished the last of seven dams and reservoirs in the Salt and Berry Rivers, We sequester, we now sequester, since then, we sequestered 100% of the flow of those two rivers. We bring it in in canals, and the Salt River running through the middle of Phoenix, down the Phoenix Valley, is a dry riverbed. Um, It is no longer a river in the parlance of it being a river. Um, And um, the interesting thing is that because we are living in a valley, and because that valley has a river, it used to have a river, now it has a riverbed, that riverbed is the lowest place in the valley. And one of the things that water does really well is it follows the laws of gravity, and so um, all of our stormwater systems here that, that that don't hold the hold stormwater in place, that ultimately discharge it, ultimately discharge it to the Salt River, because that's the lowest place. Mm-hmm. And so there are some stormwater outfalls coming into the, the Salt River bed um, in places along the valley that are draining a large enough watershed of the city, um, what have been referred to as pipe sheds, um, draining draining a large enough area that those stormwater outfalls have water coming out of them constantly. Um, And so even even with all of our water conservation efforts here, Phoenix is a leaky city. Mm -hmm. um, And um, if you have a large enough area, these stormwater outfalls have water coming out of them constantly. And the areas around in the riverbed around these these um, these perennial flow, um, stormwater flows, are, they're not stormwater flows, they're stormwater pipe flows, um, are teeming with beautiful wetlands, right? Because wetlands essentially, you know, just add water and soil and wetlands will <laughs> easy. happen. They're easy. They will <laughs> happen. They're accidental because they were never planted, they were never designed, yeah. and they are not being managed, Right. Uh, but you find wetlands like that n- probably not associated, especially in more music cities, yep. they're not associated with storm drain point sources, right? They're often associated with um, riverbanks of streams or yep. something like that. Um, but there are definitely, because in order for them to be accidental, um, by our definition, they really simply need to be not designed, not managed,
0: um, and, and not not planned,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Right.
0: Uh, One of the major UVI features uh, that are prominent in cities that you mentioned earlier are residential landscapes, and I know that um, CAP has done a lot of research on yards. Yes. Uh, Could you... I know you don't specifically uh, do much residential Uh landscape research, but could you speak a little bit about the sorts of uh, research that CAP is doing uh, on residential? Sure,
1: sure. So um, we we have... Uh, 12 neighborhoods um, that are what we call the past neighborhoods, the Phoenix Area Social Survey. Um, and every five years, we go into those 12 neighborhoods and we survey all of the residents of those neighborhoods about a whole variety of things. Um, and one of the things that we, every five years, ask them questions about is, in the last five years, have they changed anything about their yard? Um, we ask them how they changed it. We ask them about how they're managing it. Um, managing their yards, we ask them if they treat the front yard differently from the backyard. Uh, the whole—that's—that's that's what our Baltimore colleagues have have come to refer to as the mullet hypothesis. <laughs> and um, it turns out people in both Baltimore and Phoenix make very different decisions about their backyard than about their front yard. We ask them how yeah, about their perceptions of their neighborhood, um, and uh, you know do they have a good or f- bad feeling about their neighborhoods? We ask them questions about their perceptions about the variety of birds that they see in the neighborhood, for example, because we do regular twice a year bird counts in all of these
2: mm-hmm.
0: neighborhoods.
1: So we know how much, what species diversity of the birds is. Yeah. Um, and then every five years, we also do this thing called the ecological survey of, of central Arizona or ESCA where we have 200 and some points scattered around the, the Phoenix Valley, um, and we revisit those points every five years and basically measure everything ecological you can imagine. And a bunch of those points happen to fall in people's yards, mm. right? And so we're able then to directly relate um, people's decision-making, people's perceptions, people's values um, about their immediate surroundings, their yard and their neighborhood, um, to birds, bird community diversity um, and to a whole array of biophysical variables. And and the ESCA sampling and the PATH sampling are, are um, in 2021, for the first time, going to be done in the same year. And so they will, there's going to be oh, an absolute temporal, temporal relationship. Uh, we also have a group of folks involved in our, we have one of our, res- our research teams, IRTs, is called the Residential Landscapes and Neighborhoods Team. Um, and that is about as interdisciplinary a group of scientists as you'll find in CAP, which is already in a pretty interdisciplinary, um, and there's a group of those folks who've been working on another um, NSF-funded project called the um, Urban Homogenization Project. Mm-hmm. And that project involves um, work in six different cities that are very different climate zones, very different in all kinds of ways, culturally, um, all across the United States. And the hypothesis was that even in these places that are very different climate climatically and very different culturally, that yards... In terms of ecological structure and function, and in terms of the way they simply look, are going to be much more similar than the environments that these cities were placed when they were urbanized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a lot of really cool work has been done by those folks. In fact, they've come in and taken soil cores out of my yard, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of fun. That's fun. Yeah. Um, so lots and lots of stuff. And and you know, again, I I would be willing to bet that um, if you If you wanted to sit down and do a typology of all the different types of UEI that you'll find in cities, I think I would never do that because if it's basically everything but the literal built environment, there's going to be huge variety, what you're going to find. But I bet if you did a typology that the residential um, landscapes, that basically people's yards by far and away is the largest by coverage. Um, except here, maybe maybe not because we have all of these really big urban parks and preserves, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so maybe that would be our largest binary, but certainly the second would be the compilation of all of these yards, yeah. probably more than a million yards scattered across the valley, yeah. being managed in a million
0: different ways, perhaps. One thing that I like so much about the urban ecological infrastructure term is how inclusive it is. Where other terms are rather restrictive, urban ecological infrastructure explicitly includes such a wide diversity of urban nature. Admittedly, though, I don't always use the term. I use it in academic settings, but when I'm interacting with practitioners, I say green infrastructure. And if someone I just met at a party or something asks what I do, I'll say that I study green space. While the urban ecological infrastructure term is good, I do think that it is perhaps a bit too jargony for use in all situations. So next up, I talk with Jason Sauer about his take on the terms we use to describe urban nature. He uses the term heritage wetlands to refer to the system of wetlands that he studies in Valdivia, Chile. You'll hear his explanation on why he uses that term and what the implications of that framing are for his work. So to talk a bit more about the terms we use to refer to urban nature, I'm bringing in Jason Sauer, who most of you probably already know from previous episodes since he's one of the show's uh, co-hosts. But just in case, could you reintroduce yourself, Jason?
2: Uh, Hey, Stephen. thanks for having me on. Uh, Yeah, so my name is Jason Sauer. I am a PhD candidate over at Arizona State University in my fourth year of doing this. Uh, And I've been on previous episodes uh, talking about in particular, uh, green gentrification, for example, and uh, resilience of the undocumented community and Steven and I have uh, worked together on uh, the wetlands in Valdivia Chile. Great, thank you, Jason.
0: So do you think that the name that we give Urban Nature really matters or are we just sort of splitting hairs and fretting over uh, inconsequential nuances?
2: A, it's really tough to give an answer on that because I kind of go back and forth on this too. honestly, where there, there's just sometimes, and maybe it's just a product of being in academia where you're really just like, I cannot handle another term right now. <laughs> uh, but that said, I think there are plenty of papers, uh, you, you've interviewed Dan Childers, uh, for example, that uh, I, I think do outline some critical components of the debate and make uh a pretty convincing case of why these different terms matter and i mean for me more than anything else they just kind of symbolize the evolution of the field itself uh, and i think a good example of this is probably uh, just within the single term of green infrastructure and i, I think Stephen, you and i had a, a conversation about this where we were talking about doing a green infrastructure episode particularly about the wetlands and I think you made some comment about how so like a certain group of people did not actually consider wetlands uh, green stormwater infrastructure. And uh, I was just in such disbelief of the idea that somebody could think otherwise that I just told you, you must have misheard. Uh, but I was totally wrong on that. So <laughs> like, I, I guess, uh, I mean, so these things really do matter. It's, it's interesting coming in Um, At this late stage, I guess in the evolution of these concepts because you know, I've totally missed all the debates that have led up to this point uh, and That have effectively defined the words as we conceive of them so, I mean, I'm relatively new to this and so I I certainly have no baggage with a a term like GI and see absolutely no reason why you can't fold uh, wetlands into it, but I guess there are people who do think that. Um, And I think that's probably true with these other terms and has kind of, uh, I don't know, more or less provided the necessity for the development of additional terms or refining of those terms. Uh, Dan Childers, of course, um, recommends the use of urban ecological infrastructure instead of green infrastructure. And that's largely uh, because of the, the sort of history of the development of these terms, which on the surface may seem unimportant if you're not, you know, well, uh, Basted in the discourse, but um, are, are actually critical once you're in here.
0: So uh, you refer to uh, the urban wetlands in Valdivia, Chile, as heritage wetlands, and and I haven't heard other people use that sort of terminology before. So could you explain a bit what you mean uh, when you say heritage wetlands, and uh, what and the significance of that word choice?
2: Uh, yeah, so I think. I cribbed that, the the idea behind that originally from a uh, twenty fourteen publication. Gosh, let me check. Um, yeah, I cribbed it from a publication by an author named Heidi Correa uh, called "Self Organizing Processes in the Urban Green Commons: The Case of the Angachia Wetland in Valdivia, Chile." So, an actual like Valdivian um, scientist. I think this was part of her master's work. Uh, produced this paper on basically how these groups in Valdivia came together in order to um, promote the conservation of a particular wetland and how that turned into this like larger uh, movement Uh, but they the people uh, who formed these groups I believe identified these wetlands as part of their like natural heritage or like the heritage of the that you know, the land itself is the heritage that they, they've they received basically. Um, and then I think, truth be told, I think there was also a billboard in Valdivia, uh, that was actually a beer advertisement, uh, that talked about like our natural heritage or something like that and showed an image of the <laughs> wetlands. Yeah, so part of the story is like very uh, Homer Simpson and like, well, I, I read it on the billboard. Um, but yeah, so it, like the, the the term heritage wetlands for me is. Uh, sort of a critical distinction that uh, i haven't seen um discussed it in publications either, but I would probably want to to produce something about this and so part of it is just like uh these wetlands and these green spaces are more than just like green infrastructure or urban ecological infrastructure um, they're really characteristics i mean their identity they're they're part of the identity of the landscape, and in turn that landscape is part of the identity of the people that live around it or live within it and so like when we talk about this sort of esoteric discussion about like ecosystem services of these lands and things like that one of the things one of the services that it can provide is a sense of identity a sense of culture a sense of place um, which on paper looks really flat but when you're thinking about the sort of internal uh like the internal side of it or like how you feel about the the area that you live in, um, that sort of identity component of the landscape is is really important, at least on a personal level. And then I think additionally, even if you get into the other ecosystem services, the idea of um, a a sort of heritage wetlands, uh, like actually does provide some useful information. So for example, I think it's Minnesota that has this development law where there's no net loss of wetlands in the state, which basically has given license within some degree of regulation uh, to destroy a lot of the the natural wetland area of Minnesota so long as uh, a new wetland is constructed elsewhere. And so I think there's been some opportunities, not I think, I know there's been some opportunities uh, to actually study the differences between these sort of constructed wetlands and the the undisturbed or the, the heritage wetlands. Um, within Minnesota and there's plenty of papers that show anything from like biodiversity to uh, the, the cycling of chemical nutrients is distinct uh, between those two different types of wetlands and in fact uh, there's you know been I think long-term studies and I feel like there are around the 10-year, maybe a little bit more um, range that have shown that these um, constructed wetlands never actually achieve or, or you know by after 10 years have never or have still not achieved the the levels of chemical cycling that these heritage or these sort of um spontaneous wetlands uh, actually have uh so this is to say like i think heritage touches at like the personal identity aspect of of these wetland features or these other green features in the landscape but i think there's also um some critical ties to other ecosystem services that we wouldn't necessarily think about um yeah i i hope that wasn't too rambly
0: <laughs> no that was great that was great um yeah so i i guess now i'm sort of curious so a, as a researcher like so you you are not you know from Bolivia Chile but you know spent a lot of time down there and you were studying you know these urban wetlands and you weren't necessarily studying them for their uh, cultural ecosystem services that you know you were mentioning before so i guess what is, so how do you think that adopting this sort of terminology and framing of heritage wetlands, how does that impact the sort of work that you were doing um, and, and will continue to do?
2: Yeah, uh, tough question. <laughs> um, so let me think about this. So I think the the important part about naming them heritage wetlands, um, for me anyway, it it's like a reminder every time that I, I think about it in those terms that uh, these wetlands aren't just like green infrastructure. Like it's, I'm affecting the citizens of this city basically, um, and altering their identity by, you know, making these sort of recommendations for changes to the landscape, especially for a characteristic of the landscape. That's so like integral to the experience of Aldivia and is so integral to how, um, you know, people interact daily. Uh, I mean, you you have to walk by these wetlands all the time. Uh, the city smells like wetlands uh, as you're like walking through it. And I mean that like in a pleasant way. Uh, I don't mean that in a way where it smells like, you know, the, the sulfur, uh, rotten egg sort of thing. It actually smells like quite nice. Um, so I, I think this sort of like heritage acknowledgement is, is just a way of me recognizing like, this is important to the people in this area beyond the ability of this wetland to to provide, uh, you know, nit- like um, the removal of nitrogen or, or some other chemical before it like reaches the coast or, or some relatively anodyne sort of uh, conception of why wetlands are critical in a city. And then I think, especially within the context of Valdivia, I really felt a sort of pressure to acknowledge um, the wetlands as being critical to the people especially because Valdivia uh, has a relatively large population of, uh, of Mapuche that um, I, I didn't find out until basically like a year and a quarter of being there um, that there were Mapuche groups holding um, religious and cultural ceremonies uh, at wetland sites like across the city and I, I just wasn't invited to any of them previously but just over time as I spent more time in the city and made more connections, I started getting invited to them. And so like these, these wetlands are a really big deal to a portion of the population. And I think it's, it's really critical to acknowledge them as just being more than like the, the sum of these ecosystem services, you know, that we find in a, a chart in the millennium ecosystem service assessment. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what's most useful about it to, or for me, uh, like on a personal level, and then I think again, there's there's utility in talking about the even the, the differences in the level of services between these sort of heritage wetlands and uh, a, a reconstructed wetland or a, a newly constructed wetland.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. With sort of, I think the importance of that term is is really highlighting the the, the very explicit and important connections between uh, you know those wetlands and the people that live in and around them. Um, yeah, I think sometimes with other sorts of green infrastructure sort of terms like I don't know bios, green or whatever, they're a bit more sterile um, yeah. and don't necessarily evoke the sort of I don't know if emotional is the right word, but um, yeah, it doesn't really evoke the same sort of strong tie between between the people and 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 the, the sort of infrastructure features that we're talking about so yeah I think I think you totally hit the nail on the head I think mean, it's a great explanation
2: yeah and I mean like it, it's really easy to sort of conceive of like you know, I'm back home with family and my house is next to a creek and like if you took away the forest and like you know uh, undergrounded that creek or something like that like the entire landscape would be totally alien to me and just like wouldn't feel um like it you know does now and I wouldn't have the sort of connections to my childhood Growing up here and like being along that creek, there's just so many it's part of the heritage of like the this uh, of this place, and it's your heritage because you know your predecessors have decided uh actively or uh, by default to to conserve these areas um, and that's you know what you were born into it's your heritage
0: yeah so so now i'm sort of thinking about um you know, how how you might build up an infrastructure feature so that it becomes a sort of heritage. Yeah. Feature. So like in the case of the wetlands of Valdivia, for example, for those who don't know, many of the wetlands are moderately new, formed by a large earthquake in uh, 1960, I think. Yep. Um, so there, like there are people that live in the city of Valdivia that were alive before a lot of these wetlands were there. Um, And yet they have such a distinct um, effect on the cultural heritage of the city. So I'm wondering now, like, you know, is it possible to that we can create this sort of similar uh, sort of heritage cultural values with other sorts of features? Like, can you, could you make a city really identify with like the bioswales that we're putting in on the sides of corners of our streets? You know, what, what sort of, what sorts of, um what what do we what would we need to do to develop that sort of you know more holistic uh, you know cultural attachment to these sorts of features that we're implementing
2: yeah i mean that's that is a sort of an interesting case with Valdivia because i remember when we were first going down there we, i think we were told at least some of the the citizenry weren't that fond of the wetlands because it had some associations with this really traumatic event that killed a lot of people and really changed the the look and feel of the city, um, by which I mean the 1960 earthquake that generated these wetlands. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's something that is malleable, certainly. Um, but uh, I, I think it's, yeah. You know, so, like, it, it's tough to imagine, like, thinking of bioswales and being like, yeah, that's like the part of the city. But who knows? I mean read any literature or memoirs and people will, you know, bring up like, Oh, I had this like bike accident near this thing. It was like, you know, just part of this, you know, various set of circumstances and features that make up people's lives and you accumulate experiences over the years. Maybe you saw Fox next to these things Um, or, you know, I I think just over the years, sure. They can kind of uh, become part of the heritage of a city but that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of experiences and uh probably also you know good to think about uh positive and negative aspects of your heritage too like some of this we've talked i think in previous episodes about sort of ecosystem disservices uh so you can imagine like some features being like good i'm really glad they got rid of that thing uh, quite frankly um
0: yeah right or, or the instances you know where where people of certain ethnicities were just flat out prohibited from using certain you know, sure. mean spaces in cities. And there's, you know, many examples of that in the United States and in other countries as well. So yeah, you're right. There are ne- there are some, you know, negative, you know, potentially negative heritage sort of values associated with some of these spaces. Um, yeah. That sort of need to be addressed.
2: Yeah. Uh, sort of like a funny anecdote uh from like here so when i first came back uh, i was you know looking for hikes to do around because that's uh, what i spend a lot of my time doing and i found this one place called like sunflower park uh, which advertises having some uh tall grass prairie so i live in kansas i I should be uh, clear about that or i'm from kansas i should say um so i'm back home in kansas visiting family and so i went out to this place called uh, sunflower park which advertises having some Uh, native trees and some native tall grass prairie uh, to the region and I was like uh, great it's beautiful you know it's a little flat for a hike but hey I'm from Kansas that's what I'm used to Uh, and I go out there and it's really beautiful and there's like deer and everything else but it's actually built on a former uh, munitions plant uh, from World War II that was called Sunflower Munitions and it turns out it's a super fun site uh, and that's why they can't build anything there. So they just let the tall grass come in and they're do, letting the environment basically remediate the site uh, over time. But I mean, to the the, the locals uh, who live around that, they're going to have this like great tall grass prairie um, that they grew up with and that they could go escape to. Uh, it, that's just going to be part of like the heritage of the region. Hopefully uh, never again turned back into a munitions plant.
0: <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, that's all the questions that I, that I had for you. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for sitting down and talking about this. I've had a really great time and learned a lot.
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, glad to do an episode on this side.
0: <laughs> okay, that's all we've got for today. If there's another term that you like to use to refer to urban nature, or if you have thoughts about the terms we introduced today, let us know on Twitter at Future Cities Pod. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. And to take you out, here are a series of haikus that Dan Childers wrote about urban ecological infrastructure. You ready for this? I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I am ready, Okay. I think
1: I counted the syllables right. Okay, great. So you want me to do it quickly or slowly?
0: Uh, however you'd like.
1: Okay. Um, U-E-I, which I think is three syllables.
0: That is three syllables. <laughs> that U- checks e- out.
1: U-E-I concept. U-E-I is inclusive. Nature in cities. G-I confuses. NBS for engineers, UGS isn't wet, we cannot forget aquatic and wetland parts in urban concepts.
0: The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX, as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.